one thing to know is some things fit in more than one bucket, some fit in no bucket. And so it can be hard sometimes because, for example, recipes fit in no bucket. Is there intellectual property there? Sure. But it can be really hard to fit in one of those buckets. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven, sustainable product brand leaders who not only believe it better, but actively pursue it. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, and today we're speaking with Aaron Ogden, managing attorney at Ogden Glazer Plus Schaefer, about the nuances of trademark, copyright, patents, and more, so you know how and when to protect your intellectual property. Hi, I'm Aaron Ogden. I'm managing attorney at the law firm of Ogden Glazer and Schaefer. We're a business law firm who really loves intellectual property. So all of the stuff in a business that gives the business value, but you can't put your hands on. So things like trademarks and copyrights and all of that fun stuff that we get to talk to our clients about figuring out how to recognize they have it, protect it, and then maybe even monetize it on a good day. So I joke that I'm a big fat trademark nerd and that Jeff is a beer geek and Colin is a skydiving nut. And so between the three of us, we kind of have a lot of fun with both our business, each other, and our clients. Nerd, geeks, and nuts. That's awesome. That's us. (laughs) I love it. And for full transparency to everyone listening, they are modern species, my law firm, as well as uh, do a bunch of work for our clients. So I'm biased and I think they're an awesome, <laughs> awesome firm. So I'm just going to go ahead and plug that. So right you can disclose that. I can't. <laughs> yeah. Since I've known you though, Aaron, and first of all, thanks for coming on the show. I'm excited to share some of your nerdery with the community. But since I've known you, you've been a lawyer, but when I was poking around doing a little research before this chat, I realized you actually had a couple other degrees as well, such as genetics and dairy science. And I'm wondering if that was all part of some master plan, since you do actually do a lot of food work, or if it was just kind of you were going wherever the inspiration took you. A little bit of both. So I was getting my undergrad in genetics, working in a cardiovascular research lab, and kind of realizing that I didn't want to do lab work for the rest of my life. And so trying to figure out what I wanted to do, my sister was actually in law school at the time and said, hey, have you looked at patent law? You get to be involved with science, but you get to be involved in kind of the bringing it to market and making it real. Because I was really struggling at cardiovascular research. I was involved in this fun research where we discovered something. And I was like, oh, what do we do now? And they're like, "Mm, not our problem. And so patent law seemed like a really great way to have it be part of the solution of what happens now. So I went to law school, was all into patent law. When I was getting ready to, and looking for jobs, everyone was asking, what's your advanced degree? I'm like, JD? And they're like, no, no, you're competing against people with PhDs and MDs if you're in the biotech space. So what's your advanced degree? You should go get one. Things that I would have liked to have known before going to law school because it's way <laughs> yeah. easier to get a science PhD or thing like that if you haven't had like a three-year break. So UW-Madison, I was talking to some people and they were like, you know, we really are interested in how intellectual property is being dealt with in the animal breeding industry. And so can we pay you 
to come and do research and get a master's degree to do this. I'm like, oh, hmm. can you? <laughs> can I'll get that? a degree, I get a stipend, and I get to do something that's really interesting. Sure. And so that's how I got my master's in dairy science. I actually got to research all about two of my big interests because I actually grew up on a dairy farm. Nice. So were you able to pass some of that knowledge back to the dairy farm family, assuming they still own it? Yes and no. They were they thought it was interesting. They grumbled at some of my suggestions to the industry. But actually, kind of the interesting thing is at the time, so I had my master's degree back in like 2005. And at the time, I was suggesting things that a lot of the academics for sure and others were like, I don't know. I don't think that's where where we work. That's not how we work as an industry. And now in 2020, it's totally what they're doing. Oh, man. And they're doing some actually really cool stuff that I'm, I told one of the people I know in the industry that I'm kind of jealous that they came up with the idea. Mm -hmm. And so it's fun to see that they caught up to what I was saying back in 2005. And you were on the cutting edge. Nice. Well, I, I had two years to study it and think about it. Most people don't get that yeah. opportunity. Most people are just too busy doing what they do to really take a solid look right. at their industry or business. Exactly. That makes sense. Cool. So you ended up running your own law firm, but I know before that you've worked at some bigger firms. So I'm just curious, and I know what it's like as a designer, like go work big in-house company or go work at a big agency or work at a small studio. But I'm curious to know a little bit about the difference between working at big firms, working at small firms, having your own practice. Like, What, what are the nuances about those? The lawyer's two favorite words are it depends. But one <laughs> thing that small firms tend to be able to do is be more nimble and be more focused. And so I don't have to worry about litigation. I partner with litigation firms. I, so I don't have to also worry about the conflicts that causes or the extra resources that takes. And so I get to kind of go back with, you don't have time to focus on things. I do have time to focus on what we do because we say, this is what we do and we don't do the other stuff. That's why we have experts and that we know that do that. Also, we get to be a bit more nimble in how when clients are saying, hey, I want this or hey, can you do this? We're like, duh, 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 duh. yes, we can. You don't have to go and get 20 people on board. So there's a lot of that that happens. Plus, we work all remote, which I think is a little bit easier in a small firm than a big one. So when COVID came and we were like, everyone has to work remote, we're like, oh, okay, already there. And so especially because we have a nationwide practice, we were already really used to being on video calls with our clients and things like that, which I didn't really have as much of an opportunity at some of the other firms I was at. But now everybody's, again, kind of caught up to where we were. Nice. That seems to be a trend. You're always <laughs> we, we try. <laughs> on the leading edge and then people are catching up. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I've, I haven't done a ton of work with big law firms. But one of the things I always think about with big law firms is the fancy offices. And I know that fancy offices come with big overhead. Having had some fairly nice offices myself, but in comparison to those law offices, like <laughs> looks like we're in the slums. Someone's paying for the mahogany. Exactly. So like, I imagine that they also have to chase a bunch of clients that they don't necessarily even want just to be able to pay the bills and keep everyone on staff. Whereas you might get a little bit more control. You just get to work in the field you want to work in and with people you want to work with. It definitely can be where 
you get to be a little choosier. I think there are a lot of big firms that are very good at saying we don't want this kind of client. Or I think some small firms actually run into the, I need the money. And so they'll pick more questionable cases. So sometimes the bigger firms are better at saying, no, this isn't us. Or no, I don't want to have that. But one thing that we can do is we joke that we have a no assholes rule. And you can't really have that as a big firm. We're just like, if you're going to be a jerk, go find another firm. And also, if you have a big firm, you may not get to what you think is a jerk. Somebody else may not. So if I'm doing trademarks in a big firm and somebody brings in a client that's their client, can I really tell them no? I don't want to deal with them. And they're like, they're a jerk. And they're like, they're not a jerk to me. I'm like, well, so I guess that says something about you, buddy. <laughs> and so we get to have a little bit of that where it's a little bit easier to kind of have a good feel for what everybody's doing. I mean, some of those large firms are bigger than some cities. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I, and even it doesn't even take that many people to have some of those problems that you're talking about. Like I know agencies that are 15, 20 people and the people in those agencies haven't talked to each other for years. <laughs> so, so it's a, uh, doesn't take much to kind of have the com- company culture, the team camaraderie kind of break down a little bit. That's part of why we've always stayed small as well as I'd rather know everybody on the team and have everyone know each other and work together well than just have a big kind of like high school with clicks and drama going on and some people liking other people and some people preferring different things. And I don't know, it just sounds like too much chaos. I'd rather just do good work. I think there are big companies and big firms that can do that well, but I think it takes a lot of attention and it takes a lot of care. And I give them those firms that are able to do it on a large size so much credit because I don't think I have that much energy to pay that close of attention to what's going on on that big of a scope. Yeah, makes sense. So as a fellow entrepreneur, I'm curious, what what made you decide to go out on your own and what's that journey been like? Do you have any big aha lessons learned for the audience? I had been thinking about it for a while. And so I was always like, oh, I'm not sure. I don't, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe not. And at some point you just got to do it, right? It, I'm not sure that time is ever exactly right. Sometimes, at some point you just got to jump. One thing that was happening is what and made me want to do it is like, oh man, I really like our clients are asking for this information. They're asking or asking for this type of actions. Like we do a lot of online forms. We do a lot of video calls. We do a lot of things. And the firms I was with were like, I don't know. That's not really how we roll. I'm not really that comfortable with it. And I'm like, but clients are begging for this. Or I think this is how it'll work. Or I think this is how it should be. And I remember saying like, I, you know, when people ask what I do, I'm like, I do business and intellectual property. And they're like, no, you do one or the other. (laughs) Like that's two different practice groups. I'm like, but companies don't see it that way. They just see it as their business. And so a lot of people, a lot of firms were kind of like, I just, I don't know if that works how we do it. And I'm like, I'm not sure you're hearing your clients right, or they don't always know. But, and that could have been me internally hearing that they may, that may not have been the right, but that's how I felt. And so when we made the jump and implemented stuff, it was kind of nice to see how many times I was like, I was right. 
And so kind of the aha moment was, if you're feeling that's true, take the time to think about it. But at some point, just do it. And then you'll be surprised how many times you're right. Yeah, I think a lot of businesses just run on, but that's the way we've always done it more than, but that's the way it should be done. (laughs) Right. Or just because times have changed, especially since last year at this time, right? If that's how it's always been done, well, then you are way behind because the world has moved on. And so if you're doing it the way you've always done it, then be expect to get the same results or worse than you've always had. How are you going to get better if you don't do anything different? Yeah. I'm probably going to butcher this quote and shouldn't even tempt it, but uh, I don't know if he came up with it himself, but the former executive director of AIGA, Rick Griffey, I just remember him saying at one of our leadership conferences, and it was something to the effect of, if you're not constantly evolving, you'll be irrelevant. You know, again, I butchered that quote, but but the idea is that you've got to keep changing. You've got to keep growing. You've got to stay with the times or else soon you're just going to be some relic in a museum. And that always stuck out to me. And I think that's part of our ethos as modern species too, is no matter how comfortable we get, we try to push ourselves forward, like start a podcast or something like that. You know, it's just more opportunity to learn and grow and figure out where the future is going instead of sitting around being like back in on my day. Right. And one thing that's been really great about our clients is they've embraced that as well. So whenever I have some kind of crackpot scheme, the first people I talk to are business partners. And the second people I talk to are our clients. I'm like, what do you think? Does this sound interesting? Does this? And they bless their hearts are all so honest and be like, yeah, that's awesome. Or no, you're nuts. Or, oh, that sounds great. But what about, or how about this? Or did you think about this? And so they have been just the best sounding boards because they're a bunch of business owners too. Yeah. And so that's been kind of the best that we've found to evolve is to ask the people who are going to be affected because the, they love being asked, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, Oh, you care about my opinion? Well, yeah, you're going to be the one impacted by it. They always give great advice. Great ideas, great advice. Yeah, just recently I've been, well, partly because of COVID, I imagine, but I've been taking a bunch of different classes and multiple of them have been in marketing or entrepreneurship or something like that. One of them was an accelerator program. One of them was like a marketing seminar and another one was a community design masterclass. But anyway, all three of them super emphasized over and over again how you can make your assumption, of course, of what you think is the better way. But you always need to go validate that assumption and do interviews with actual people you're trying to work with. Otherwise, what's the point? And I appreciated that about each class. Nice. Um, It's fun to know that we somewhat started our businesses for similar reasons. I think for me, it was also, you know, the bottom of the economy. So nobody was really hiring, but I wanted a job, but I couldn't find anyone who was doing things the way I wanted to do it. (laughs) I didn't see anyone that was out there trying to work in the spaces that I was working, wanting to work in or doing things in a more responsible or sustainable way, et cetera. So I just felt like the industry needed to go that way. And of course, I guess to your point of the industry catching up now, 12 years later, (laughs) there's tons of people doing (laughs) more responsible, sustainable design. So it's like a constant challenge to stay ahead of the curve, I think. So you have to evolve and you have to listen to what your clients or potential clients are saying. And you're like, oh, 
so maybe that is, and sometimes they, what they're saying is don't change because I feel like these other people are flashing the pans. You know, I feel like they're saying that they have this mission or they have this, but nothing but their words are showing it. So just keep on. Um, and other times what they're saying is I need you to add this service or I need you to, I, I had one experience last year where I was talking to a client on the phone because of the PPP loans. They were disorganized and they're like, I don't know where my materials are and I don't know where all of this is, but I just would love to have help keeping all of these documents organized. And at the same time, I was getting an instant message from one of our other attorneys saying, yeah, this client's such a mess and it would just be so great if they could just get the documents so much more easily. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, I'm not a genius, but I feel like this is an issue. (laughs) Yeah. Seems to be something here. There might be something where clients are needing a secure document portal where they can have organized documents that they can read, that they can access at any time. Huh. And so I talked like, and then you found a Dropbox. (laughs) Right. Well, but we, so we looked at what there was available and what we could do. And we found a way to make that happen for our clients. That's great. And so we were like, how'd you come up with this idea? I'm like, well, I was literally being shouted in every direction to do it. Yeah. It was more uh, being responsive when you see an opportunity. Yeah, I forget who said this or exactly how it was said, but it was something to the effect of, you know, most of business success is, is both, obviously, it's a privilege of being in the right time in the right place, but also then somewhat luck, like some things happen at, mm-hmm. for some people, but being the type of person that responds when that opportunity hits, I think right. is one of the big defining aspects of success is a lot of people would hear all that noise and be like, I'm too busy to figure it out on your own. Right. And or complain that they later, have disorganized clients. Maybe make some progress. So question, I think a lot of the listeners will probably have a good idea, but since you're the trademark and business nerd in the, in the room right now, could you help define the complexities of copyright of trademark versus maybe even service mark versus trade secret and patents. We'll just keep it to that list. I'm sure there's a bunch more, but but I know that I've had lots of people ask questions of like, oh, is this more of a copyright thing or is this a patent thing or is this a trademark thing? And I try my best to answer them, but I, I don't have all the answers. So I'd love, <laughs> love to have you define it for everyone. First of all, there are, those are the four kind of biggest regimes of tr- intellectual property protection that the government sets up. One thing to know is some things fit in more than one bucket, some fit in no bucket. And so it can be hard sometimes because, for example, recipes fit in no bucket. Is there intellectual property there? Sure. But it can be really hard to fit in one of those buckets. So let's start with trade secret. So trade secrets are information that gives your company a competitive edge because it's a secret. And it's that last part that people kind of forget, even though it's in the word. It has to be something that gives you an edge over others. And so that's important. It can't be it's secret because the part is blue. So what? And that it's kept a secret. So you have to treat it like it's a secret. If it's a secret that everybody in your business knows, or it's a secret that is on your website or that your scientists have just presented, (laughs) 
not a secret. And so all of those things are important. Kind of the biggest trade secret that everybody can think about is the Coca-Cola recipe, right? Nobody, except for I think two people in the world, know the full recipe at any time. You only know what you need to know. And so you might know a bit of what happens, but you don't. if you don't have to know a thing, you don't. It's so trade secrets are often um, valuable when they when things can't fit in other buckets. When it's a useful piece of information or process or something that is hard to do other things, so often recipes can fit in that. So if you have a beer that you're creating and you have a unique way of making sure that the hops bring the brightness without adding bitterness that you don't want, then you should do it. But that means you have to treat it. So if you have one of those beautiful breweries that everybody can see what you're doing all the time, probably very hard to keep a secret. Mm -hmm. If you have brewers that are on a rotating door and you don't have anything saying they can't take those secrets with you or everybody, including the bottle washers, know what's going on, again, not a great trade secret. Patents are protection of a novel and non-obvious, usually function. The big line is anything under the sun made by man. At the time, apparently didn't think women could invent. But (laughs) so a lot of times they'll say anything under the sun made by a person or by humans. So that's where you get pharmaceuticals, where you can get a new process, a new method, all of those things that tend to be pretty functional and not creative. Patents tend to be very much in the functional field. It's a really cool policy approach where it's trying to get leaps of innovation. So they reward you really strong protection, Mm -hmm. but in exchange for that protection, you have to teach the world how to do it. Oh yeah. That's interesting. And you have to teach them from the get go. So when you put your patent application and you're like, this is exactly what we're doing and how anyone in the normal field can do it. And you actually get, won't get a patent if you don't actually like tell people, teach them how it's done. And so you get this really long protection period of 20 years from the date of application to recoup your costs and take money on it. But then after that, everybody gets to use it, hence the generics, right? So with pharmaceuticals, the drugs can be really expensive for those times. And as soon as the patent drops, the drugs are cheap because everybody can make them. And they've everybody's been taught and learned how to do it. So at the moment that the patent ends, they're ready to go. It's not another five-year lag. It's almost the opposite of trade secret. Right. Trade secret, you can keep forever as long as you keep it secret. And reverse engineering destroys a trade secret. But reverse engineering doesn't destroy a patent because you've already there is no reverse engineering. You've already shown it. It's like a trade unsecret. You told everyone already, but you get protection for it. <laughs> right? It's the exact opposite of what it is. So they tend to be two sides of the same coin. Now, trademarks are something that is owned by a business, but is actually all about the consumer. Because what it is, is it's something for the consumers to say, I know what this product is and that I got it from the same people I got it from before. It's an indication of source. And so when they see your flying bear, they know what it comes with it, right? They know that it's the sustainable design. They know 
all of those things and they know that kind of the quality that comes with it, they may or may not know that it's modern species. They know a lot of the other things. So for example, when you see the golden arches anywhere in the world, you know what you're getting, right? McDonald's, super consistent. If you show up in McDonald's and they give you a filet mignon, you're kind of worried about where did I just show up? <laughs> yeah. It's all about preventing confusion in the consumer. And so it can be anything. It can be a logo. It can be a name. It can be a color. So for example, pink insulation. If you see pink insulation, insulation doesn't have to be pink. So you know it's from the same company you always see pink insulation from, Owens Corning. It can be a sound, like the NBC chimes. It can be a smell. Abercrombie and Fitch and Verizon actually have registered smells from this how their stores smell. Right? So it can be really anything that a consumer can connect with and say, I know where this comes from and help sort out the sea of competitors. And then I often think about it, it's not just how did your consumer do that, but they can refer it on. Oh, you should use the people who have the flying bear. Oh, you should use the people that have the bright orange packaging. You should go to that store that smells like a teenage boy. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, the one that smells like ass. You know, something like that. It's actually, I think Verizon is flowery musk scent. I was going to ask, how, they how, do they de- how do they describe this? the smells yeah. for trademark? That's got to be interesting. Right. So that's the crazy part, right? Like that's one of my favorite things when they talk about advertising is print advertising for perfume has to be the hardest thing ever, right? How do you convey a smell when you can't smell it? Scratch and sniff. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, and so then... That's trademarks. And trademarks is really about how do you protect that relationship between a customer and a business. So technically, trademark is for goods. Service marks is for service. So technically, both our logo and your logo are service marks. And if you have a candy bar or beer or whatever, that's a trademark. Everybody just calls it a trademark. Like if you want to put SM or call a service mark, go nuts. If you call it a trademark or put a TM on your service thing, nobody's going to be, clearly this doesn't work. So when you're applying for it, is that you're applying for basically the same thing? So in the application, in the federal application, they don't even ask, is this a trademark or a service mark? Yeah. Okay. So if I, for example, we have a service mark since we are a service agency, Mm -hmm. but if I happen to sell our nice little whiskey glasses with our bear on it, that would all of a sudden flip over to the trademark side. And I don't yep. have to apply for a or separate mark. Or to look at the other way, breweries, if you sell, so breweries, you sell beer, your tap room service. The trademark office separates the world into, I think, 46 classes of goods and services. So like with the brewery, we might say beer and tap room services. Those would be two different classes of goods. So the trademark office charges fees for both because that's how they make their money. But both the trademark and the service mark are in the exact same application, exact same registration. Okay. While we're on classes, just quick dumb question. Are there classes for patents or for trade secrets or anything like that as well? Or is that specifically a trademark thing? Trade secrets, no. Trade secrets is secret, not secret. And technically, you could 
decide if it's confidential information versus trade secret. Confidential information is information that's confidential now and may become stale. Trade secret doesn't become stale. Mm, okay. That's we that Temporary that's really secret, nerdy. yeah. Patents don't really have classes. There are certain different types of patents. So you can have utility, plant, provisional, but utility patent is what really everyone thinks. Provisional patents are a way to get to the utility patent. And then there's a design patent. So design patents are things where like I protect how this looks. So bottoms of athletic shoes. A lot of those are design patents. So it's not really a function. It's how it looks because they all function by making it so you don't fall on your butt when you're running. But within that, it's not really classes. They put them in different offices, they call it. So if you put in a biotech patent, a person in the biotech office is going to be looking at it. And so you don't have to worry about trying to explain a biotech person to somebody who is a business method expert or vice versa. They won't really do the classes and you don't pay per class in the patent part of the office. Okay. Trademarks, you pay per class. And then copyrights aren't through the patent and trademark office. So trade secrets, you don't register anywhere. You just wait until somebody, you think someone's infringed it, and then you sue them and you have to prove that you have it. Oh, wow. Okay. Patents, in order to get them, you have to apply for it. And there are a lot of deadlines. If you think you want a patent, don't mess around. Talk to your patent attorney like yesterday. Because you could be doing stuff to screw up your ability to get a patent. Trademarks are interesting in that you don't have to register it in order to have trademark rights. You can just by using it because you're already creating that relationship between you and the customer. So by doing that, you're gaining common law rights. You can register it. And by registering it, you gain some extra rights. So common law rights, like let's say I'm a coffee shop here in Madison, Wisconsin. The only people who use it are here in Madison, maybe not even on the other side of town. So I really only have rights where my customers come from. So if somebody used the same coffee shop name in Washington, there isn't likely to be any confusion, right? Because people from your town aren't coming here. People from my town aren't coming there. The only people that maybe have that issue are you and me. And so they don't consider that enough confusion, even though I might be very confused. But if you have a federal trademark, then I can actually say, no, you can't use it in Washington, even though I'm here in Wisconsin, because I have that blanket coverage. So if you have the trademark, you have that protection. But would you also have to somehow, if you did want to pursue that, defend it by proving that you have customers all across the country or, or demonstrating how you plan to open up shops in Washington? Or can you just by owning it, you, could, you get to tell people not to use it? That's the bonus of having a federal registration is that you're deemed to have it everywhere. Now there can be defenses. It, so let's say I have a mark and I say I get to own it everywhere. You're in, Wisconsin, you're in Washington. You have to stop. They can say, well, you know what? You should never have gotten that to begin with because you didn't prove that you had interstate commerce. And we're like, no, no, because I'm pulling in people from Iowa. I'm pulling in people from Illinois. I actually have a small shop in Dubuque you didn't know about. I have the interstate commerce. Or you can say, that's great, but I actually started using it in Washington 
before you, before your application. If you can prove that, then you can actually carve out your little area in Washington. Uh. You may not both stop me from using it anywhere else, but in that little space in Washington, it's yours. Burger King had this problem. Oh, interesting. They had everywhere in the world, except for a little town in Illinois. And there was a Burger King who had prior rights. Hmm. And so the Burger King you knew had to be Burger Queen there. <laughs> of course, they eventually like paid enough money yeah. that the mom and pop shop was like, I can retire on that. Makes sense. But yeah. They couldn't be Burger King in that town because that place had it first. Now, they couldn't stop our Burger King from using it everywhere else, but they could stop it from being in that town. Well, that's an interesting question. So that original Burger King got to keep their name, but did that for sure force the trademarked Burger King from using that name in that same town? Because they didn't have the mom and pop shop didn't have a trademark on it. They just... About that common law, I guess. Okay. Yep. They had their common law mark. And so they could say no, because when people in this town think Burger King, they think that I've been here for the past 50 years. Yeah. And they haven't left town, so. Right. And there can be arguments, well, like, in our, Burger King, he's like, yeah, but I'm bigger. Everybody else thinks that. And they had to show, no, no, in this town, they think me. They yeah. think Maude and I. They don't, they don't think you. Nice. Okay. It's complex. So it was really... <laughs> It, it, was, it was, like I said, it's all about the relationship with your customer. And so people like to think of it as, well, I own that mark. And it's like, no, the customer actually owns it in some set. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's symbiotic. Whereas copyright, and so trademark and copyright get confused fairly often, but it, they're really doing two different things. Because like I said, the trademark is about how you relate, how your customer relates to your product and you. And it can be a subsect of branding, but it isn't branding as a whole. That's another question that lots of people and uh, graphic designers like you and marketing agents like to tell me branding and trademark are not, you know, complete. There's an overlap, but there it is not this exact. Copyright is actually the protection of a creative expression of an idea. So not the idea itself. So kind of how it can play with patents is I could come up with a new way to make a, a widget. How that process, how that widget is made is a patent. Me talking about how I came up with the idea, how like my, that inventor story, mm -hmm. that's copyright. And so when my patent expires, my copyright might still live on, but that doesn't stop other people from not being able to use that process. Interesting. They just can't take your story. Right. They can't take how I wrote it. So one of my often analogies is there's a thousand stories about vampires or there's a thousand stories about Abraham Lincoln and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. There's only one about Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter. <laughs> That's a good example. So you want to write another story about vampires? Go nuts. You want to write a story about Abraham Lincoln? Go nuts. If you're going to write Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter, the person who came up with that story and thing probably will have some problems with you because they cr came up with that idea and that creative expression of that idea. From what I know as well, copyright is also like instantaneous, like common law kind of as well, but you can also apply for it like trademarks, right? So how does that break down? 
Right. So it's kind of goofy in that copyright to bust out the legalese, copyright initially vests upon it being created upon it. Um, And so if you put it down on paper or however you, again, the legalese is transfix it in tangible form. So it initially vests once it's transfixed in tangible form. In other words, you have copyright as soon as you make the thing. So you can write circle C, you can do all of those things, but you can't sue somebody if they take your idea or make a derivative of it unless you have that registration. And so you have a copyright that you can say, yay, I have a copyright, but you can't do really do anything with it until it's registered. And so if you think you have something that you need to, you might need to sue, it behooves you to register it. And it's not that expensive. Of all of the things, that's probably the cheapest thing. Okay. So, but with the trademark, the common law version of that you haven't registered, can you still functionally protect that? Or is it just kind of in case somebody comes after you? With the common law mark, it can be offense or defense. So you can just be like, nope, you can't sue me because I already have it. But if you could go on the offense and tell, say, no, you can't do this or write your cease and desist letters or all of that. The issue is that you have to prove that you have a trademark, right? So if I say, hey, you're using that mark on legal services and I don't have a registered mark, I have to show that I have that logo. I am using that logo. People see that and connect it to us. And not only that, but they connect it to legal services where the other person is. So again, that Washington. Yeah. And so that can often be the hard part. Yeah, everybody here in Madison knows me, but do people in Seattle know me? With a federal registration, most of that is presumed. I don't have to go into court and prove all those things. I said, I've already proved all of those things to the trademark office. You other side have to show why the trademark office was wrong, Hmm. which is a big hurdle. Yeah, okay. And so it can make it a lot easier to go on the offense if you have a federal mark. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. But it's not required. But with copyright. You- and I can go into the federal court system instead of state court system, which can be really helpful because federal court systems tend to be faster and tend to be a little more knowledgeable. Like the federal court system here in Wisconsin knows this stuff. They've seen it a lot of times. If I filed this in one of the rural counties upstate, that judge is like, yeah, I remember that in law school 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So for the copyright though, because I, I was always under the assumption that you at least had some protection with it, just not as much, but that's good to know that you actually have to register it for it to be useful. Even if you've got the copyright on this beautiful poem you wrote, <laughs> if you wanted to protect it from someone turning it into a song without your permission or something like that, you got to register it. Okay. Yep. That's good to know. Well, thanks for breaking those down. I think while still kind of a big mess of overlapping things to some degree, (laughs) I think that's a little bit clearer in my mind, hopefully other people's minds as well. With that said, I feel like one of the things that pops up a lot as a business owner, as a designer, as well as questions that other people ask me is, is around when you should like start some of those trademark processes, for example, and 
what should I trademark? For example, I know some companies who are just hardcore about it and they like trademark everything they've ever said, basically, <laughs> and then go after other companies to get them not to say it, even if it's something super common, like the phrase always organic, which seems like I don't even know how you could get that trademark, but somehow somebody did and they go around and, and push other people not to use it. So I'm sure you get those questions all the time. I know you also like to talk about an ounce of prevention <laughs> goes a long way, right? So how do you advise people on when to pursue that and what to pursue in terms of filing trademarks, copyrights, et cetera? The answer is, what is your strategy? What is your goals and what is your budget? I like to use breweries for this example. One, we do a lot of work with breweries, but two, it's a really good example in that if you are, first of all, if you're a brewery that's making 30 beers, I can spend all of your money and trademark all of those beers. But that probably doesn't make sense if 25 of those beers, the name is here for three months and gone again. It's not a thing because if I file a trademark application today, it's not going to register for at least 12 months. So I wouldn't even get the registration before that mark is long gone. And so if you have a mark that is a, a quick thing and it's not going anywhere, probably not worth it. The reason why that might not happen is if you're going to spend a huge marking blitz and that is the most important three months ever, and that mark is so important, then maybe. But then I wonder why are you putting so much effort into a three-month mark? And so what is your thing? But if you have you know five flagship beers, that that's what people think of, know of you, and do it, then maybe that's worth it. And so if that's something that you build your brand around, so one example I kind of use here is we have New Glarus Brewing. If you know New Glarus Brewing, you know Spotted Cow. People know Spotted Cow without even knowing New Glarus Brewing. And so Spotted Cow better be something that they think hard about protecting. Whereas one of their marks like Enigma, it was a great beer, but it wasn't one that they used over and over and over again. So it wasn't probably likely worth it. Now, maybe they had some special release or something like that, that it could be, even though it was a one-time deal, but it, you'd have to really know what that strategy is and why is it such a big deal such that people are going to remember that three years from now. And three is an arbitrary number, but more than from when it's on the shelves. Other things that can drive that strategy is what are you planning on doing with your business? So I was just talking with someone today where their goal is to sell their business, but their business has like zero physical assets, right? Like looking at me as a law firm, what are my physical assets? My camera, my computer, my chair. I don't even need a desk if I have a laptop. So everything is intellectual property. And so if I'm thinking of selling this business, a potential buyer needs to know what's there. What am I buying? And so we're looking at, okay, what can we show that they're buying? And why can we show if they're buying it, maybe they're looking at expansion. So maybe I want to show they can expand far beyond Wisconsin because I have this federal trademark. Or they can see that it's on there and it's it's got value because it's not forgotten on a balance sheet. I do, I help business buy and sell. And it's amazing how many times I have to remind the company, you have trademarks. Oh, right. 
And this can help remind them, if you have trademarks, maybe that value of the company needs to go up, or at least they can see that it's on there and it's part of that due diligence. Another big thing is budget. We work with a lot of small companies. I mean, very rarely do you have the marketing budget of Coca-Cola or Nike. Unless you're Coca-Cola or Nike, yeah. <laughs> right, and even they are looking at their budget. And so you can't just register everything. And so we look and we say, okay, what, what makes sense? What is your budget for this? And then we start prioritizing. You're like, you know what? That's Yes, your trademark's important, but your copyright is way more important. People are going to steal your expression of your idea long before they're going to steal your name. If you're a, a photographer, they're going to steal your photographs, especially if your photography company is your personal name. It's really hard to protect personal name. So if it's Gage Mitchell Photography, I'm not going to spend money on your trademark. I'm going to spend all of your money on copyright. If the budget is... I can spend $2,000 this year. Well, then I'm not going to say do these three trademarks because I can't. Like that's not going to be your, unless you're find a really bargain basement trademark attorney, it's not going to be worth it. And so we say, okay, what can we do? What trademarks make sense? And the questions I often ask is what trademarks are your customers connecting you to? Now, what are they connecting with it? So I was talking to somebody the other day and they listed off like three or four things that their clients connect to and none of them was their company name, right? And so it was a lot of their product lines. It was a lot of their service lines, which is fabulous. And so the, if I'd asked, what should I trademark? She would have said, oh, my company name. But when I said, what do your clients, you know, how do they refer you to others? What do they try and say you should, you know, if you're talking to another person, what they should do, it was all about their product lines and service lines and not the company name. So let's not spend money on the company name until it matters. Yeah, that's super helpful. One of the things that I'm often wondering that maybe you can dive into a little bit too is trademarks. Again, like I get the the name, sometimes that makes sense to trademark, sometimes it doesn't. I like the idea of what you're talking about of focusing it more around how customers relate to your business. And I wonder if that kind of fits in with the trademark idea. Because I think a lot of clients are often wondering whether or not to trademark their tagline. And my advice is usually, well, is this a temporary you know, campaign kind of tagline? Or is this something you want to own for 10, 15 years? And you would be upset if you saw someone else using it all the time. But with that said, maybe you've got different slash better advice there. Nope, that's exactly the advice. Is this a is this a three month campaign? If it's a three month campaign, is it a three month campaign that is going to change the going to change the world in such that I you knew about it a year ago? So that way, by the time you launched it, I actually already had the application in and ready to go. Because if you didn't, then it's not that big of a mark. But if the logo is what people or if the slogan is what people are doing it, so there are slogans that I could say that you would know the company by me saying the thing, like, I'm loving it. McDonald's has been using that for like a decade. Maybe it's her, maybe it's Maybelline, right? And so that's something that people really connect with. So if you have slogans like that, then yeah, if you're, if somebody else used Live Moss, Taco Bell would probably be annoyed. But if you have a slogan that everyone's like, I guess that's a slogan. Right? Like I joke that our mantra is an Einstein quote, make everything as simple as possible, but no simpler. Could I register that as a trademark? 
Sure, it's on our website. It's on some of our marketing materials. It's our it's a slogan, but it would be a waste of money because nobody actually sees that and be like, oh, that's Ogden Glazer and Schaefer. They might be like, oh, I think Aaron said that before. There's no, there's not that connection. Or if it's if you're a company that's always changing what your messaging is, your money is better spent on the TV advertising than on the trademark. Yeah, I was actually going to mention that that uh, it almost seems like unless you're heavily investing in that phrase, that tagline, or whatever through things like advertising to make sure that customers associate those words with your brand, then it's probably not worth it. Like if you're just casually using the line, for example, like with us, I've always tried to decide whether modern species should trademark design a better world which is a phrase we've been using for like probably 10 plus years and just wondering like well i don't necessarily want to stop other people from designing a better world (laughs) but you know we do use that phrase and if if i saw like a bunch of other design studios using it all of a sudden i'd have a little bit of an ego moment being like hey but that's fine but and at the end of the day do we put enough power behind it do we put enough advertising behind it to really make it worth it probably not so that's why I'd be asking, what's your goal? What's your strategy? Because maybe if you're like, you know what? I'm thinking of selling this company in a few years. Maybe it does because we can show that the company can continue to use that, right? It's it's an asset of the company. If you are thinking of changing it or thinking like, mm, you know, this company is going to die when I do, less so. You know, Nike has a bazillion slogans, but they spent the money on just do it and they invested heavily. They, you know, that one. Yeah. And so that's kind of where does it make sense? Maybe you same with the color, like pink insulation. But I say everybody should use color. Like we use green a lot in our firm. That's our color. Are we going to register in it? No. Pink insulation. Yes. Yeah. Or Tiffany's blue box or whatever. There are some colors that you're just really heavily leaning in on for your brand. Right. And if you remember like UPS a few years ago was all about what does brown do for you? Like they wanted to say brown in logistics and packaging is us. Century 21 was all about that gold color, but they wanted you to know that, right? It's not just because I have a color. It's that I want you to make sure you connect that color. Actually, that popped something in my mind. In those kind of cases, how important is it that that color is uniquely yours? Like I know, for example, the Tiffany's color, they got their own specific Pantone or something for it. So that was customized, whereas like Home Depot orange, like I don't know if they just grabbed international orange from a paint swatch book and called it a day or if they made their own orange. But how protectable is a color that maybe other people have used or have had access to use? versus having to come up with your own specific one. Again, goes to that likelihood of confusion. So could I use Home Depot orange on my donut shop? Probably unless I was calling it Donut Depot, because <laughs> now I'm trying to trade in on their orange, right? But there are companies that use the same colors, like John Deere equipment for construction has a John Deere yellow. It looks very similar to the DeWalt yellow for me. But if I'm doing hand tools, I'm not necessarily thinking John Deere construction equipment. If I'm thinking construction equipment, I'm probably not thinking cordless drills. 
the, those are actually probably closer than most. So if I, again, let's say I claimed that green for legal, it's mine. And I saw another law firm using that green. I'd be frustrated because I'd be like, you're, you're trying to get people to think you or me, or I support you or a sponsor or something. But if I saw that same green on power tools, have at it, right? Nobody's going to think it's the same thing. There's going to be no confusion. If it's saw it green on graphic design, interesting, right? Because we do so much trademark. Are customers likely to think they're related? It depends who's paying me, right? And are you sure? Are there, or no way, because they're two different things. But that's where you start saying like, okay, does that color start connecting people to that source and they're getting confused that when they see that color, they automatically think it's connected back to me. So for like the Tiffany blue there, that's famous. If I saw that Tiffany blue pretty much anywhere, I'd think somehow Tiffany was related because it's so ingrained, but the Brown for UPS, if I saw that Brown somewhere else, I wouldn't automatically think UPS unless it had to do with delivery. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Cool. That's helpful. I think, again, the reminder of thinking in terms of the customers, like where, where's that customer confusion or, or how, what do they relate, I think is a good rule of thumb there. So I know we're briefly touched on like all the different what you should trademark or what you should patent uh, a little bit there based on those three questions you brought up. But then what about when? I think sooner is probably always better then later, obviously, because I think it's when you submit the application is when the clock starts ticking. But with that said, what's your perspective on when? So if it's patent, you before anything else, because you're gonna you you can't patent it if you've been using it for a while. In the rest, of, as soon as you disclose it to the public, you prevent patenting in the rest of the world. In the U.S., you have a one year grace period, but you in disclosure is very very broad. So if you think you want a patent, like stop listening to me right now and go talk to your patent attorney. Copyright, you can wait. There is some things, but the best protection is if you register it within three months of you putting it in a form, usually by publish. So if you've published it within three months, you don't have to. If it's been three months and you're like, oh, I'm screwed now. No, but copyright is one that, it, it's really easy to be put on the back burner and forgotten, but it is also one that because I can't, it often comes up when it's, when you're mad, this is your ounce of prevention versus pound of cure. And I'm like, well, I already, I can, yeah, I can apply it now and I can get it registered now, but I may not, and maybe you can sue upon them, but all of this time and all this ability to recoup your damages before the registration is gone. So proactivity with registration of copyright can be really helpful. And I I want people to register those a little sooner rather than later, especially because they're not that expensive. Trademarks based on budget and strategy, man. Like what's where's your strategy? Where's your budget? If you are if you are a startup and the question is do I trademark this versus pay my employees? The answer is usually pay my employees. <laughs> Sometimes not if you have a weird thing going on where you're going to be purchased very soon or something like that. But it's what's your budget telling you 
because you have those common law rights. Sometimes you can get screwed though in that you keep putting it off because you're like, well, you know, it's never the right time. I, my budget never shows it. And then all of a sudden you realize that people are starting to encroach and there's now someone in Idaho using your mark. And so you kind of don't want to have to fight about that. So again, if it's a really important part of your mark sooner rather than later, but I also don't like it when people have us register marks that they don't really know if they're going to use it. Right. Or they think, especially do we have some Liberty gibbet clients and I'm sure you do too, where as soon as they get a mark and they're in love with it for a whole month and a half, and then they are on to the next one or, well, that product actually never worked. We thought it was going to be the next big thing. And it turns out nobody likes fizzy clam juice. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. And so I always like to see a little bit of traction. I often like it if the product or service can pay for its own trademark. Mm, yeah, that's a good rule of thumb. It's not a cut and dry. It's not a don't do it if not, especially if your plans are such that this is important to get to it sooner rather than later. But often that helps a customer realize like if you can't even pay for itself, is it really that important? Yeah. I think that kind of reminds me of how a lot of people are with buying URLs or domains. <laughs> they just like have an idea in the middle of the night and they just go ahead and buy that domain with maybe no actual intention of ever using it, but just in case they use it, <laughs> they want to buy it now. Which is great. And it can get you a long ways towards trademark stuff, but trademarks aren't 50 bucks. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That makes sense. So since a lot of the listeners of Evolve CPG are people managing brands in some way, what common mistakes do you see brands make with trademark, patent, copyright, et cetera? Not managing them. They are an asset and assets are managed just like your employees are managed, just like your physical assets are managed. These need to be managed. And so that could be evaluating are these serving us so just because you have a registration are you still using that mark maybe you don't need to register it or maybe you don't need to maintain the registration because trademarks need to be renewed there are companies that have that they get on these sprees and they register marks in like everywhere and i'm like why do you have a mark in like montenegro do you sell anything in Montenegro? And they're just spending money to renew it because nobody took the time to actually look. They just got a bill, paid it. And so pay attention. Is this service? If you have something, use it. So one, I mean, this is kind of a thing like shop your own closet before you go buy a new shirt. You know, if you registered this mark, you said it was important. So why are you not treating it as important? And if it's not important, then why is why are you spending money on it? So a lot of that portfolio management, aligning it with your goals. A lot of times I think it gets divorced from your strategy and they shouldn't be. They should be aligned. Yeah, like people just start hoarding their trademarks rather than actually just keeping the ones they use and they get value from. Right. Or they don't register the ones that actually matter. Right. They're like, what do you mean you don't have that mark registered? That's like all of your business. Nobody knows about all these things. And this is if you someone starts using this, you are you're going to be hurt. 
So you can't spend $1,500. You spend $1,500 on new coasters. <laughs> and you can't do it on a mark when this is everything to your business. Yeah. Oh, right, right. I guess. What about protecting it? Does that count as managing it? And do you suggest if you're going to own a trademark, you need to be out there keeping people away from it as part of that management strategy? I think knowing your enforcement strategy is part of your management. It doesn't mean that you have to go and chase every single thing. It's not necessarily a game of whack-a-mole, but it's also a mark is only as strong as you're willing to enforce it. If you have a trademark that you let everybody use, you just wasted your time and money. And so if someone's using it and especially if it's hurting, it might be worth going after it, but it's something that you always have to take. One thing I hate is bluff letters. I don't want to send a cease and desist letter. If you're going to do nothing with it, if you're going to do nothing, then do nothing now. But if, if they're, if it's hurting or if it's, you see this going down the road to, you know, damage, then let's stop it now. It's amazing how many cease and desist letters end in something that can work. We're like, okay, I'm not going to use that mark. I'll stop using it. But I have this inventory. Do I have to destroy all of that? And a lot of times it's like, no, that's all right. Like, how long is it going to take you to get through this inventory? Two months. Okay. You have two months. Get through as much. If you don't sell it all in that two months, then you'll have to destroy it. But like, fire sale it. And you can get through a lot of it without having to go all the way to court. Enforcement isn't just lawsuits. You can get a lot of there. Breweries are a lot of that where it's collaboration, not litigation, right? Yeah. That kind of makes me think of another potential rule of thumb, which is don't bother spending the money on trademarking something if you can't afford to protect it. However, you know, sure. that's obviously an offensive sure. strategy. Like some people will trademark just for defense so they don't get sued by someone else who kind of steps yep. on their toes and then comes to try to take it away from them. Yep. And that happens in patent and copyright too. There's a lot of defensive patents, a lot of defensive copyright because both de- copyright and patent, you don't have to practice it. Trademark, you have to use it to have a trademark. You can't have a non-practicing entity. So it's hard to have a trademark troll. It's, Patents and copyrights, you can have that. You have the rights even if you're not using it. And so there's a lot of that troll-like behavior that can happen. And so defensive patents and defensive copyrights happen more often than maybe a defensive trademark. But they certainly can happen. Again, what's your strategy? Where it's the use of your money in the best way possible. Makes sense. Okay, so since you're seemingly always... 10, 20 years ahead of the industry. (laughs) What do you think the future of branding trademarks law looks like? Do you see any any changes coming down the pipeline? People are getting more sophisticated, more savvy. Customers are getting, are figuring it out more. Where it's right now is really starting to, where trademarks for a long time just kind of were trademarks it's really starting to blend into yes, branding, but also culture and mission. So many more companies are showing what they're kind of value driven, even things like Campbell's soup, where it was always like about family, but now they're like families aren't just mom, dad, and white. 
you have a lot more of this value-driven business value and, co- and trademarks connecting to that. And I see that continuing as people start really wanting to vote with their dollars, especially as more, you know, you, you go to the store. When I went to the store as a kid, there weren't 20 options for ketchup. There were two, well, three, right? Hunt's, Heinz, generic. Now there's a thousand. And so I get to choose, do I want paleo? Do I want keto? Do I want blue? Like I have a bazillion things. And so people are looking at ways to connect with the business more, connect with it and being able to say, you should use this. You should be able to, and be able to pick out of that sea of opportunity. They need to have something. And so as their choices are more value driven, they need to make sure that they're correct, getting the correct product because of that. Yeah. So nuanced. That kind of reminds me too of the, like you're saying, connecting your trademarks to your mission. And that reminds me back of that example I was talking about with the always organic thing. Like obviously being organic or being mission driven or, or trying to make more sustainable agriculture, the norm is a great mission. And to some degree, it almost seems counter to that mission to then go and trademark a term like that, that probably half of the organic world has been using. <laughs> and it just seems like counter, uh, or yeah, it goes, it goes against the let's move the industry forward and starts getting a little capitalistic. And it bothers me a bit. Do you Could see be. that a lot? I do. So we also do a lot of FDA labeling help. And one of my pet peeves is Just Company. They have Just Mayo that has no egg in it, so it can't be mayo. It's Just Mayo salad dressing. And so they're trying to say, oh, it's just because it, you know, it's fair or whatever. And it's like, no, you're, you're trying to trick me. And so that stuff drives me nuts. I think there can be a lot of good intentions with bad consequences. Like I actually just saw lawsuits that an attorney that to my like near and dear to my heart, I don't know him, but I support him fully is he's fighting companies that use vanilla saying something is vanilla flavored if it doesn't actually use vanilla. And the argument is people are like, well, they just, just because you see vanilla and it doesn't mean that you actually think vanilla is in it. I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> I would hope so at least. <laughs> Right? Like vanilla is a flavor because it has vanilla in it, not a generic thing. I think you'll see a bit more of that as people become more label reader, more label conscience. But that kind of thing is where I'm like. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that in the dairy, non-dairy or plant-based meat. Can you you use the word meat or can you use the word milk? So there's been a lot of battle back and forth over those like generic category names that I guess we've come to think of as like a particular type of thing, even though it was specific, like milk obviously wasn't any juice of a thing, but now it's like become this generic, it's the juice of an almond, it's the juice of a cashew. And it's, so that's an interesting battle because I can see both sides of that argument. Well, I can see it for both sides with milk, especially if you're like, do I really think cash, if it's, if it says milk and it's cashew milk, I'm going to be annoyed. If it says cashew milk, do I actually think it's come from a cow and the cow's name was cashew? Probably not. But I think there's meaning in words. 
And I think we're going to, and people are becoming more sophisticated with that and caring more because they now have to, because they can't just be like, here's my one, three choices of ketchup. Yeah. With those kind of confusion things, I assume those are usually more of like a consumer complaints that get people in trouble of like, Hey, I, I was buying this just mayo. So I thought it was going to be mayo, but it turns out it's not mayo. So I'm angry. Whereas I think a lot of other packaging things like you're talking about is usually the industry, like someone else in the industry turned you in for some sort of labeling issue just because they want to like take you down a couple notches. So often it's consumer. Like I said, the attorney with the vanilla vendetta was a consumer complaint. You see a lot of the stuff where it will be consumer complaints. A lot of it can be industry. So like the milk is really driven by the dairy industry. Cause they're like, you're taking, you're taking our thing, man. And so sometimes it's battle between industries. Sometimes it's about maybe sometimes it's that incestual thing where it's people inside their own industry trying to be like, no, nah, you're, you're getting too far. Or you're going to get us in trouble. Sometimes they'll even oh. do that. They're like, if you start doing that, then you're going to make it all worse for the rest of us. Interesting. Yeah. And then some of it is the people in Congress that are frustrated or think where they're they're like, you know what, this is hurting my constituents. People in Wisconsin, our constituents tend to care about the dairy industry more than people who are in like Arizona. Yeah, makes sense. Beautiful. Well, I have a feeling we could nerd out on this stuff for hours more, but I'm looking at the clock and realizing we've already talked for a little while now, so we should uh, we have. <laughs> probably save some of this for a future episode, but... So again, thank you for coming on and sharing some time and sharing your wisdom and nerding out with me. I think, I hope that this sheds some light on some of these confusing subjects for people and helps them understand a little bit more. So appreciate that. My absolute pleasure, Gage. Thanks so much for having me. Good times. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Erin or her law firm, go to ogs.law. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us ideas for who we should talk to next at evolve@modernspecies.com and Learn about our new online community for brand leaders at EvolveCPG.com. See you next week.